say hello. Just Whoa, started rolling. What do you got, Michael? I'm so upset because I think Why are there you? might have been oh, buddy. some kind of miscommunication. Oh, not a com- miscommunication on this podcast? What, what what's that? What were we supposed to watch? We were supposed to watch Wes Anderson's A Life Aquatic. Oh, no. Abe. Yeah? I watched yeah? Punch Drunk Love. I'm one behind. <laughs> That's not true. We already talked about Punch no. Drunk Love, Michael. No, I watched Punkadunkalunka for that. No, this time that, I watched Punch <laughs> Drunk Love. Oh, that's right. <laughs> wow, you actually, yeah. Yeah, that's uh, right. <laughs> right uh, universe, wrong time frame this time. <laughs> I don't even know how to yes and that bit. I don't it's even know a- what people who join in the middle because they like a particular movie are, make uh-huh. of that voice because it started as a groan of... <laughs> A groan of panic, and now it's just a sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you're just a cartoon. It's an abstracted sound. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you heard it from Michael. Uh, I guess mm-hmm. <laughs> the obligatory Here we are. bit. Yeah. Anders' sons. We're Anders back sons. again. Your monthly installment of two different Anderson directors. This time it's Wes, mm-hmm. and this time it's the Life Aquatic. A set of sons brought to you by another set of sons, Abe Epperson and Michelson. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, let's just dive into it. This was uh, 2004, co-written with Noah Baumbach. Mm -hmm. So I and people who know Wes Anderson's oeuvre know that this is an an interesting new phase and an interesting film. I I don't want to give my should we just dive into the spectra, Abe? Or do you want to give little overall impressions? Sometimes I depending on my impressions like to tease you with them up top. Sometimes I like them to come out organically. How are you feeling? I don't, I like the organic thing, but I do want to start doing a thing, which I think is in the, uh, as you were saying about like people are just jumping in. Mm -hmm. I think we got into the stage that I was thinking about it last night when I was watching this and making notes. It might be good to do kind of a, like not a recap, but just like, for example, I think it would be good for me to say the following. Like, and I'm going to say it now. So I'm going to do it now. Here we go. Which is that, like, <laughs> so we're a few movies into Wes Anderson's career at this point. I think we're like at five each. Uh, mm-hmm. And we're starting to see like cameras developing now. There's more motion. The sets are more elaborate and lived in. These are my takeaways, but also, like, I think that anyone who's watching the films in order, like we have, uh, you can see geography as a whole is more paid attention to in the past. We're like uh, Anderson would be in a shot that moves to a new location. Then there's another shot like these little vignettes that it make up his filmmaking montage, like the the fabric of his uh, pen, so to speak, Sequence or whatever. Postcards, yeah. Secret, yeah. Like them, they are themselves developing, becoming more complex. And I think that that's a cool thing to note. Just that after a few movies, and we'll do the same when we talk about Paul Thomas Anderson next month, how he's developing. When you have um, an auteur director who really does wield a lot of control, for better or worse, I gotta say it is very gratifying, and you learn so much doing this, which is not something I normally did before I became a podcaster about five years ago. I would never watch a director's works in, in order. order for any yeah. reason, <laughs> you know, and right. uh, I would watch them based on the subject or my interest and hop around until I had seen them all or most of them of whatever director I was interested in and uh, watching them in order. It's really like watching 
uh, a TV. Like I used to catch Seinfeld all the time out of order and syndication and then watching it in order. You're like, there are actually subtle little arcs and in jokes and references to Mm -hmm. the callbacks that I didn't even realize Seinfeld was playing with callbacks as a, as a student of comedy. This just appeals to me. I was like, Oh, I didn't realize they were venturing into that functional joke territory that early. And uh, I get the same thing from watching it's, it's double edged, man. I got to say, because my impression, and I like this, I think another way of saying it is we're checking in with the journey so far. Like, yeah, we die, we deep dive into each film very, you know, we like to just get into it, but it's cool to also do. Well, now we've seen five. What's your impression of the overall arc of this? this yeah, person just so far? check in whatever and we want to say. I will say I'm getting the both. I feel like uh, there's a lot more confidence with in some aspects and it might just be this film. Filming on water and underwater, very difficult, intentionally set himself a challenge. But I will say, I thought this movie has super high, maybe some of my favorite Wes Anderson craftsmanship moments and some of the sloppiest like, wow, is I can't believe that made it in moments in terms of craftsmanship. Um, Uh Both. And there's a big swing. And I'm starting to go on the one hand, respect this person and know them more deeply and what they're interested in. And on the other hand, there is a magic shine that comes off as you do that because you're like, uh, oh, I see. You like He's these, done this before. You like these yeah. seven things. And I will say uh, P.T. Anderson is better at obfuscating that so far, meaning mm-hmm. he seems very rangy. The movies, you know what I mean? Like even the tactics he employs vary from film to film. His themes are va- vastly different. It's mm-hmm. not always the same content. Uh, Whereas Wes, like- I am getting down to the point where I'm like, Okay, oh. so the last shot of every film ramps in from normal to slow motion with a musical sting. Like, mm-hmm. do you feel legally obligated to do that? Is that your M. Night Shyamalan twist? Because, like, mix it up a little. You know, I, I have that yeah. feeling sometimes. And then there's other moments where I'm like, wow, wow. And we'll get to those as well. Just wowie. <laughs> wow. Well, I don't want to unpack it all. That's what the rest of the show's for. So let's get into it in our first segment. We don't really do a pagination spectra, on this. But spectra. Well, you do, but who uses that word? That's an old ass word. Yeah, let's use normal words. Like this segment's title, diegesis. That's a normal word. Nice <laughs> That's a normal, normal word that three dollar word. Everyone knows. Yeah, this is. We're just gonna go through the film and uh, punctuate po- points that we're like, hey. Yeah, but That's generally a recap um, with a bunch of stuff attached to it. This is where we get our actual comments on the. But, you know, it's also great for people who haven't seen the film recently because I think it refreshes what we're going to discuss in the next segment in your mind. So, as mm-hmm. I said, 2004, a co-write with Noah Baumbach, I believe, for the first time, um, their collabor not their first collaboration ever, but their first feature film co-write. <clears throat> and yeah. uh, also the only other thing I want to say about the team is incredible score by Mark Mothersbaugh, who is always yeah. great. And Devo and, is one of the best bands. The end. <laughs> and Seu uh, Georgia, Georgia, I think I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Uh, he Who plays a cast member, Pele yes. de Santos. Of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mothersbaugh didn't I'm do sure we'll get into that. The Portuguese but, like, Bowie. There is Portuguese Bowie throughout little acoustic uh, covers that I would say is like 50% of the score, which he did himself. 
Yeah, Seu Georgia is like an actual musician. So, Um, and stellar cast, as always, it's Wes Anderson. So we got Bill Murray, Owen Wilson, Kate Blanchett, Angelica Houston, Willem Dafoe, Jeff Goldblum, Michael Gambon. Like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. You know, holy shit. Um, I mean, since I've seen The Cook, The Thief, The Wife, and The Lover, I can never think of Michael Gambon again the same. But yeah. yeah. changes he's somehow yeah um, but he's, he's goofy no and friendly Dumbledore. In this. yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, um, it opens at the premiere of part one of steve zissou's new film bill murray the titular steve zissou uh which is called adventure number 12 the jaguar shark part one uh mm. which is then treated as a framing device and i gotta say immediately this is one of the moments where i was like for Royal my money, Wes, you got to stretch a little more. But uh, yeah, Royal Tannenbaums and Rushmore. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. And I don't think Bottle Rocket does, but it's becoming a rut where uh, this the screening is basically an excuse to do yet another opening montage with narration that's a big list where you just go, here's this person's deal, here's their deal, here's their deal. Um, and you have little postcards that have cute, funny details, like the script girl is the youngest one and is t- presented topless in the postcard. They say this person's the, or Pele is the safety supervisor and it shoots, it's a shot of him hurling a flare angrily into the river. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. hilarious. Um, but I did, uh, I, for whatever reason that bumped me of like, okay, we're doing this again. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then, but it does, it's, I see why, cause it's rich with information, right? It's because he wants to, put you as close to in medias rest as possible. And by that, what I mean is that he wants to give you a uh, front load, so much information so that he's already doing context later because he finds context way more interesting than exposition. So he does a charming montage to get most of the f- like f- foundation down Mm -hmm. so you can be like ah yes this next scene can therefore be uh the nuance of how these two people are estranged as opposed to the scene in a normal screenplay which would be here's slowly that they're estranged yeah right which is why info dumps are artistically defensible in some way which is so interesting because it is hammered into young screenwriters to not do that um Mm -hmm. And maybe that's why I'm reacting that way. You know, it's just my like reflexes. Indoctrinated. Yeah. I mean, there's a reason why, because if you just did that and then did nothing interesting with it, it's the least interesting storytelling that exists. Yes. Then it's just and then and then. But you could argue Wes has the skill to do that responsibly, I guess, would then be the. Yeah. Yeah. And and he charms it up a bit. He charms up the, you know, exposition. He does it well. I I especially love Rushmore's. The fake clubs are. That's an arguably a funny list. It feels earned in yep. a way right um but he, we get a lot including the fact that he loves esteban uh, bill murray loves uh esteban because we see him kiss his head and has show emotion mm-hmm. which he doesn't for the rest of the film uh mm-hmm. except in a few key moments and then i think the other thing that's really important that we get from that is the vibe and the way that he is aesthetically gonna tackle the splendor of the undersea world because that's something you know finding nemo had to deal with it and then uh ponyo had to deal with it like when you're animating the undersea world that's a very unique challenge to set yourself a horizon forbidden west recently it has a lot of this work but like this way is a really cool way too. I have to say the way that Wes, the Wes look applies to something that's not just the insides of houses. So it's basically, you know, interior design is most the way that that art deck is usually expressed. 
the fact that this is fake fish and fake undersea plants and fake, you know, land masses, it made me, it reminded me of the Muppets, it, which is very mm -hmm. high praise, meaning like it made me feel weird and comforted and like the way I felt when I was a kid, like, but a weird homemade brand of vintage fantastical. Yeah. Yeah. Very specific. And I think he generation. knows exactly what he's doing there too, because it might just be for some specific uh, generations, but there's a line later where they talk about he'd be 11 and a half referring to a child that is yet to be born. Mm -hmm. uh, that's my favorite age. And I think that that's Wes Anderson. And that's also, it comes from storybooks. It comes from, you know, you've developed enough that you're actually responding to some of this childlike fairy tales that you've been reading. And uh, I think that there's something where it's like, okay, identity is starting to stir and your regurgitation of, you know, the things you've been reading, which have mostly been magical, are most fresh in your mind. I think that there's a magic, you know, kind of eye of the storm there. And that's, I really think, a lot of Wes Anderson's visual aesthetic is determined by what he experienced during that time period, I would mm -hmm. actually argue. He he points at it several times in his movies. Time, for sure. Yeah, I yeah. think, yeah. For so sure. we get the inciting incident as well in the film. Which is we see in part one of this film that's being screened that Esteban gets killed by some kind of mysterious undersea creature. And uh, Bill Murray slash Zisu surfaces screaming, Esteban was eaten by a shark-like fish 10 meters. Uh, to which Willem Dafoe, who plays Klaus, another stellar cast member I don't think we mentioned yet. Bitten? Eaten! So swallowed whole? No, chewed. <laughs> like they have a little debate about it. Yeah. And uh, they accuse him of having the crazy eye and we get a close shot of him with contacts in having like little hypnotic spirals, crazy yeah. eyes. Uh, send Klaus yells, Steve, we think you got the crazy eye. And they drag him out of the water and we cut out to the screening happening at a theater and we Steve that, see that Steve's a Sue, the, you know, the attending his own premiere is overwhelmed by some kind of emotion and wanders out and smokes a joint. Right. I think. Yeah. Yeah. He burns one. He burns one down. <laughs> but he, uh, but he vows to find the shark and kill it. Then he uh, fields questions from the yeah, audience. Yeah. In a Q and a for the scientific purpose of revenge, as it said, for what scientific purpose? purpose? Yeah. Revenge. revenge. Uh, I don't know how yet. Maybe dynamite. <laughs> right. Which and, just becomes uh, a running joke. Of course, uh, we noticed because he was already famous at this point that the person who asked, what are your plans for the Jaguar shark uh, that you think killed Esteban is Owen Wilson and he's wearing a pilot's uniform. Like you definitely notice those things, right? Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but you don't know who he is yet or what's going on. Um, then we get a bunch of flat wide postcard shots at eye level because <laughs> it's a Wes Anderson movie mm -hmm. yep, of, uh, of a party afterwards. And a bunch of people are negging Steve and we sort of get the washed up, right? He has washed up divorced dad energy or whatever, even though he does have a wife, but I mean, he's got, he's got that energy. Uh, mm -hmm. he's forced to take a photo against his will with Alistair or Allie his rival, who's Jeff Goldblum. Goldblum. Yeah. Uh, and he tells his wife, Eleanor, played by Angelica Houston, uh, trigger warning, homophobia here. Don't be nice to Ali. He's my nemesis. How could you lay that sick, slick F word? Uh, and I want to stop down here. Not stop down. That means stop the recording. But I want to pause and talk about, because it's the first time it comes up. Um, mm -hmm. He's super homophobic multiple times. 
And mm-hmm. obviously time's passing. I'll just say this. When we did our Rushmore episode, someone in the comments got mad at us or I'm over. I'm being oversensitive. I don't want to mischaracterize them. But they mentioned that they're like, this is just this movie or Rushmore is just cover for two men toxically harassing and sexually assaulting. And I, I thought that's valid, but I also think it's still worth, you know, blah, blah, blah. I did the little dance in my head. And uh, this one makes me lean more towards that person's point of view. I got to say where I'm like, uh, how did you feel about Steve getting forgiven fairly easily after being a pretty I, bullshit guy? I do have a lot like of shooting, problems. Like if you took it seriously, right? Like he yeah. steals and shoots a guy to death and betrays yeah, no, he's everyone a, he's over a, he's and over. He's a son of a bitch all the and way Royal through. Royal Tannenbaum is That's also equal, equally I, like a I shit think guy. It's in, I think it's <laughs> important to separate the like comeuppance of it like the justice for the character, which is the writer saying this is what ought to be. Mm-hmm. There's like some kind of moralistic tale, uh, you know, like, or moral to that, you know, and that's, that's where I think we start going. Okay. Yeah. So what are you trying to say, Wes? I have no problem him calling like gold bloom a queer and just like talking down to him the whole time. Basically the whole point is steve zisu if he doesn't like you you are immediately gay he calls jane aka uh uh uh, kate blanchett a bull dyke it's like his go-to response i'm pretty sure this is actually wes anderson focusing on zisu's weaponization of insecurities something that he does not allow to happen to himself so he's mainly preoccupied with what people think of him all the time so like I think that that's a valid thing for a character to do, but it's true. He gives his characters a pass for being kind of monsters often. Like we do in a lot of comedies of this era, you know, we, yeah, it's just becoming a pattern where the aging central white hetero male figure is a piece of shit, a piece of shit. And then at the end goes, I am a piece of shit, you know, and they go, yeah, but it's okay, dad or whatever. And they go, thank you. And it's resolved. And you're like, I don't know. It's not that clean in real life, but whatever. So we've said that and that's fine. We'll dip into it, I think, in our next segment, just because I think that there's more mining there. Um, But let's move on. But he is. Yeah. And I'm not trying to conflate it with Wes. It's not a uh, dragged across concrete situation by a long shot. But um, I I just thought it bore mentioning because it definitely triggered me. So uh, uh, but they do. It does a great job of setting him up as washed up and shitty because then someone who's clearly like a mistress or something comes Mm -hmm. and embarrasses him in front of his wife. And they both storm away from him as he pops a pill with alcohol. And you're like, that's a good. It's almost like the dude on the toilet, you know, with the bowling ball in the toilet and the milk on his head. It's like a good <laughs> image of a broken man. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I thought this was really interesting because it reminds me of the love on the knuckles and punch drunk love. It's so like literal. Steve sadly reaches out to a video monitor showing es- footage of Esteban and the screen shocks his finger like a little mm-hmm. shock of electricity. It reaches back. Yeah. 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 Uh, very on the nose. And I'm not even saying that in a bad way. I mean, a magical realism way. Um, mm-hmm. let's see. Defoe's kid is a fan and brings him a crayon pony fish, which is, we start to realize, oh, there's going to be actual made up fish in this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. it's like a seahorse with rainbow colors. 
And Defoe points out, you don't seem well. Another old man comes and bugs him for signatures on all his movie posters. And they basically just do a funny little bit where he gets sick of it. And you're getting more info dump because you're like, OK, he's made a sequence of movies, but they're old, blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's like and it's clear that what he is, is a combination of like Jacques Cousteau and Buck Rogers. Like that's Anchorman the as Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it's a con- it's and it's beloved by a small niche of people. Uh, and He's a bad they're boy all of very rich. Yeah, they're yeah. very rich, and it's kind of a sketch in that way. Uh, and he accosts, he then moves on to accost a fan. Uh, well, a reporter who's like egging him oh, on, yeah. I would say, because they ask, Who are you gonna kill in part two? Yeah, and he which actually him. comes to pass. <laughs> That's true, uh, but it is, yeah. uh, that would make me throw hands. that would make me get, get angry. It. He just yeah. lost his friend, right? Yeah. Um, and he scrupulously saves the pony fish. So you're like, okay, but his redeeming value, it's structured very well. I mean, it's all clear. His redeem, mm. he's an asshole who's washed up. He does love the ocean. Like, right. You're getting the right. character so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's, it's effective. Uh, the Pele plays Ziggy Stardust in Portuguese, which just fucking rules while the sound guy tapes it. Like what a fucking vibe. And I think a lot of the, of Zissou more than even more than Tenenbaums, even more than because it's on the sea because they are like a team that's treated almost like a sports team story at some points of the film. They all wear matching uniforms. Like there's many moments of this film where I am like, this is a unique, good vibe that I have never experienced in any other Mm -hmm. film, including any other Wes Anderson film. This doesn't feel like bottle rockets. This doesn't feel like, you know, at moments. Uh, So like, and then, yeah, the actor slash singer guitarist deserves a lot of credit because the Bowie stuff in Portuguese adds to that vibe tremendously. It's just a great mm-hmm. combo of elements. Also check out that art- artist, uh, Jorge. Uh, he's got this track called Carolina and it fucking mm-hmm. rips. It's nice. like better than any of his covers. It's really fun. Anyway, just wanted to, for my Zorge heads out there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. So let's see, just so that we have the entire premise clear in our heads, he says to his old producer and his wife, if you'll excuse me, I'm going to go on an all night drunk. And then in 10 days, I'm going to hunt down the shark that ate my friend and destroy it. <laughs> and that's we're like, the, the movie action, yeah. has begun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we do get one last thing. There's pressure for the next one to be a commercial hit because yeah. he's in a rut. Uh, as well. So they're the man who finances all of his f- uh, films, who is an off screen character, Larry Amin, is said that he needs uh, like the financing needs to be really uh, tight this time because he's not going to give him as much money. So that's where we're going. And this is what uh, our protagonist has vowed. Um, then the then B we, plot begins. Yeah. This mm-hmm. is, I mean, it is a textbook structure. Uh, Structure was. Yeah. yeah, So B plot must begin now. And that is introduced by Owen Wilson saying, hey, I'm your long lost son. Boom. Basically. Boom. Ned. He's Ned. He's here now. And uh, we the the pipe that is laid that will be picked up later is Bill Murray says, I never knew you existed. And he accepts that. But we can tell he's suspicious. He goes like, yeah, yeah, that's okay." Um, And he goes, so you were supposed to be my son. I don't know. But I wanted to meet you just in case. And they're like, "Okay, Mm -hmm. uh, welcome aboard. But it's awkward. Right. As I'm Uh sure it would be in real life. So um, then in an interesting but sensible twist on uh, Wes's normal 
postcardy style, we start to get woozy postcards where the camera gently cants back and forth like you're on the I scene. I think this it totally is the makes coolest sense. shit, though. Uh, it's good. Th- yeah, it gives the a way total we vibe. Do- so this is a, seg- a sequence where we show kind of the introduction of the boat. We did the crew now. Yeah. Now we're going to see the boat in motion and like what the boat feels like. And in order to do that, you show the space. And uh, this is something that Wes Anderson is... Uh, talked about he's very influenced by french new wave cinema so it's coming from a specific era of a set of like a i think a like three or four films that were made in the 60s that were considered dollhouse filmmaking yeah and uh what basically what you think of is like when you open a dollhouse or like saw it in half that's what you get it's a very cool set one of the more the most elaborate set that wes anderson has ever worked in right i think to this day in terms of stage sets and that a, i've seen i was in gonna his say movies. as a theater major i have to just stress that inspired originally by the same fad in set deck for the theater world be like Arthur Miller and death of a salesman was famously staged in the dollhouse style. And then all the Pinter stuff got revived in the dollhouse style. And then Mm -hmm. filmmakers were like, fucking, I'm going to do that for a movie. And yes, I actually think the Belafonte is up there with these firefly and shit as like Mm -hmm. one of the more memorable or the serenity, I guess one of the more memorable ships if you just talking ships, like I know the inside and out of it, I think it's really cool and funky and I love its functionalities. Mm-hmm. If it were a toy, I would have wanted it as a kid. It has a chopper. They have to and crouch to get sub. through some rooms, yeah. you know, but other rooms are very lavish and elaborate and feel like a normal den of like a home. It's got life in it. You know, it's yeah. got it's got a contrast and it's got it feels lived in and that feels like a world you want to be in which so so i understand the cult following of this movie even though this did get like it didn't make its money back it fucking right it, it one of his least successful films financially uh, it's got it, it's gotten a lot of people in the sense in the years saying this movie's actually pretty good and i think that this is one of the credits is you know the artistic stylings of it. It really, you, you feel how Wes Anderson has developed over time. It comes with al- a pair of albino scout dolphins of which, uh, Zissou says they're supposedly very intelligent, although I've never seen any evidence of that. <laughs> he fucking hates those dolphins. He hates the dolphins. Um, we, we observe that the sub used to be called Jacqueline and now it's called deep search and Jacqueline's crossed out. And, uh, mm-hmm. we hear Ned ask him what happened to Jacqueline. And he says, she didn't really love me. And it fades down to black. It's just a very powerful, interesting visual vignette. It's the, let me tell you about my boat vignette. It's awesome. Just watch it on YouTube. If you don't care about the rest of the movie, it is really cool. Um, so many talented craftspeople had to come together to make that sequence. Right, uh, right. yeah. And Owen joins the voyage. That's basically the end of that. And then next kind of sequence, uh, Zisu overhears some people in the lobby make fun of him and his earring, uh, which again is a nod to he. I think he doesn't want to be seen as gay. Um, Also that he hit on a 15 year old. Did you catch that one this uh, time? This is what I'm saying is it's not just the one homophobic slur. It's the fact that if you break down the details of the thing, he's like. He's it's just a piece of shit committed statutory rape and murder and shit. So it's like, or at least assaulted, aggravated right. manslaughter. Um, and so it's is, just like, wow, yeah. he's, he really goes there. And that's all fine and good to have your character <laughs> be that almost redeem, uh, irredeemable and then try to, but then, then the next thing happens, which is that immediately almost without 
like with an expected cue, I guess is the mm-hmm. the phrase I would use. This hurts him. And we camera follows and gives us a close up. And that's how we start the scene. Ned and him have a heart to heart, which leads him to kind of say like, you know, they may say this stuff and they may, you know, you, you're supposed to think that they're jealous, but uh, this really hurts me. And so there's a lot of sympathy for the devil here. Yeah. Uh, and Ned says, well, my mom killed herself with sleeping pills. Well, he doesn't just say that unprompted, but they're commiserating about hurt feelings. Mm-hmm. And he says, why would she do that? And he says, well, she was in a great deal of pain, you know, and he goes, oh, yeah, I see. Yeah, I thought that was a really interesting interchange. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just slice of life. Like, yeah, what what can be I think said? that's that's bomb box touch, I think, is that I was going to say, pattern. I also feel like you can tell. And there's a moment at the end that I'll definitely bring this into focus. You can tell the Bombach moments if you're a fan of his writing uh, through films mm-hmm. like Squid and the Whale and stuff like uh, that. Marriage Story. Yeah. Yeah, and you can tell what's Wes for sure in this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can feel mm-hmm. the chocolate and the peanut butter of it. So Margo at the wedding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Anyway. So he's bonding. They're bonding. So he flies Ned out to it. He says, hey, let's check out my private island. And is sort of trying to impress him, but you know, he's washed up. So it's like an archer thing where it's not that impressive. Uh, Eleanor immediately greets them and says, you know, your cat died. A a rattlesnake bit it in the throat. And he's like, God damn it. Why do you have to tell me that way? You rich bitch. And uh, Mm -hmm. he obviously resents that people call her the brains behind Team Zissou. So we also get the impression that the marriage is strained and we're like, ah, he's washed up in every dimension, right? It's the career. It's the marriage. It's a shitty deadbeat dad. Um, And yet at the same time, he lives a mystical life full of rich uh, luxury and oceanographic wonder. Like we cut to him feeding an orca a fish from his hand. And stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So Ned is still kind of charmed and impressed, um, especially when that night they he's awoken to hold the boom and record sound for a scene they're filming spontaneously because of a what they call a rubber tide, which is a bunch of electric glowing jellyfish who washed on shore. And it's like this is so we get the right the uh, washed upness Mm -hmm. of it all. But we also get but it's punctuated by magical moments like you can't beat. There's a reason everyone wants to be at some point in their life a marine biologist, right? Because it's magical. Those moments, you imagine it to be at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they punctuated at the end to really drive it home. It's like the it's the appeal for the work and the appeal for like, oh, he's got a vision. Um, but his life is a goddamn mess and it's due to his own insecurities and failings, which will become the theme. Uh, as we develop and our runner uh, plot kicks in, which is, uh, defined as the, Oh, I would count that as the love triangle fatherhood B plot. Mm-hmm. Like arc. I meant, um, the even less time spent on it arc, which is Willem Dafoe being jealous of, so oh, yeah. Klaus yeah, comes definitely. up and is like, he can't even work a boom. He doesn't know diddly yeah. jack about what we're doing here. <laughs> yeah, it's um, great. So they just established that he's jealous so that later he can make up with it. Yeah. He's not um, a true crewman. But you're right. The The main plot is is moved forward by the arrival of Kate Blanchett as Jane, I guess. But they call her Cubby most of the time. So I think of her as mm-hmm. Cubby. But I know her character name is Jane. And she cor- correctly identifies the jellyfish, which Steve misidentified, which is just kind of a good puncturing of and, you know, setup of their relationship, right. which is going to be her completely taking the piss out of him and pointing out that he's washed up. Uh, oh, and she's pregnant, which I mentioned because it's key to the plot. 
and then it turns out they oh it turns out they forgot to pick her up at the airport and she had to sail there for four hours which is neither here nor there it's just like they're a shitty operation they suck we get it over Uh and over um klaus i think it is important that klaus wants to creepily hit on her but steve stops him but only because he wants to creepily hit on her he's like yeah it's 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 the concept of dibs yeah, yeah which is nonsense um also there's yeah no no just keep going actually all right you're on a roll um we slowly start to dolly down the hall which i did think was a cool effective shot uh, down the depth of the hall as Ned creeps out to investigate a sound and he finds Jane reading to her unborn child and he ends up. So we almost we get like dibs, but then we get Ned and Jane having a scene where you go almost bottle rocket esque. Oh, they're obviously the ones that are meant to be together, not Stephen. You know, mm-hmm. like this is mm-hmm. where the real action is. The two young, attractive people, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bond over the fact that uh you know, they both are coming from sort of negative situations. He says his mom died, uh, committed suicide because of the pain from ovarian cancer. And uh, she says that, or she is clearly in a relationship where the father of her unborn child is married to someone else and she's dealing with that. And uh, he asks if he can stay a while and listen to her read. And she says, okay. And it's a sweet little moment or whatever. Yeah. Uh, I do like the ending. All right. Well, do you want me to catch you up on the story? Nah, I'll figure it out. <laughs> like he's, you know, the point is just to hear her voice, not the story itself. And that is <clears throat> cute. It's exact. It's cute exactly in the way that Luke Wilson was cute in Bottle Rocket. Yeah, um, it's a uh, it's a mother to a child. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we, we just covered Punch Drunk Love, which has that vibe as well. So. Yes. Yes, a we all want. Bit. To fuck my mother. Um, <laughs> hi, mom. She listens to this. Uh, hey, how you doing, mom? Um, how you doing? <laughs> Steve sits down for his first official interview with Jane, and she immediately launches into hardball questions. And he's like, "Whoa, you know what's happening yeah. here? I thought this was going to be a puff piece." Yeah, um, and so he calls her a phony and points a gun. Oh at my her. god, this is where I yeah. So she says, "Oh." She says, your film seemed fake. And he says, oh, did it seem fake when my best friend was bitten in half and eaten alive, screaming right in front of me? I think you're a fake and a phony and a bad reporter. Does this seem fake? And he points a loaded gun at her head. It's, it's <laughs> like, kind of amazing. It's a because very always sunny, I mean, mo- like, archer moment. No, there yeah. should be no illusion what Wes Anderson's doing here, right? Like, he wants you to think. That's bad. That this guy is a mess. <laughs> yeah, this guy's he's a point- He's just met a pregnant woman and his first thing he does is points a gun at her to prove a point yeah uh and because she just asks questions about if he's happy about his career success and his public perception he fires questions back at her and she stops the recording even though she's not the uh the point of the interview i think it's interesting that she stops the recording because she herself shows that she has insecurities about her reporting which becomes later like it's this is what Wes Anderson does. He makes like a little insecurity sandwich for us to eat every scene. Um, Yeah. Um, After that scene, Klaus confronts Ned basically for no reason, just because he wants to stir up shit. Keeps calling him Sonny and eventually slaps him like sucker slaps him and says it's the Zisu show, not the Ned show. Uh, Mm -hmm. To which Ned replies, Klaus, if you ever touch me again, I will kick your goddamn teeth out. Is that understood? 
And Klaus says, not if I don't see you first, Sonny. Uh, Klaus, I got to say, Defoe, which I'm sure is a breakout hit character for people who love this film, really reminded me of J.K. Simmons in Lady Killers. So check out our Lady Killers episode of Coen Brothers Brothers on how he functions. But copy paste Mm -hmm. that like he's that guy um, guy. functionally. Steve coaches Ned on how to handle the reporter. Mm -hmm. It's clear that Mm -hmm. Steve's trying to spin the story. So like he's constantly wheedling Jane to make him look good. And he's telling Ned, all right, if the reporter asks you this, tell her this. (laughs) Or, you know, like, don't fuck me over on this. But Um, Ned cuts to the chase and asks if he knew that he was possibly his son, mm -hmm. why did he never reach out? And ZC responds that he hates fathers and he never wanted to be one. Uh, Yeah. And so that's our kind of true starting beat. Like that's, this is the first layer of the onion. Uh, and it's not that dense of an onion. No, it's but just it's, his dad was shitty. This is just so where we're he at. fears yeah. fatherhood. That is all it ever is, which I think that's is, all it ever is. That's a believable, grounded, that's all it needs to be simple, for functional. What, yeah. It's yeah. just a little bit of introspection and a little bit of grief. Yeah. Uh, and then at 34 minutes out of it's 110 or so minutes, Murray gets a call from Gambun saying that their financier has basically pulled funding. And I love the phone call. It's very good. He's like, so uh, Michael Gambon is like, let's not cast stones at each other, my boy. Do you hear me, damn it? Do you? <laughs> like, he just changes You're for no reason. Yeah. And then, and then uh, Bill Murray gives one of the most Bill Murray readings of line. He goes, no, I don't. And he's just, <laughs> they're immediately at 11 and it's just, they're both angry. It's a wonderful little, it's over in like 10 seconds. It's great. Uh, they'll and, do Clooney and, Murray will do that in the Fantastic Mr. Fox almost that exact same bit. And it always yeah, works where you go from zero works. to a hundred. Fuck you, Sun cuss, anger. cuss. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of talks to the uh, toxic masculinity that he's kind of uh, deconstructing here. And uh, then it's immediately fizzled away because Ned says he inherited $275,000 because and he's his, willing uh, to mother. give it to the movie. To the production. Would that work? Yeah. Would that make any difference? And of course it would. So, so they fly by chopper straight to mm-hmm. Gambon to spend the money immediately and like get the bank going and lock him down. Yeah. Um, but the bank has a few requirements because they're loaning them like matching funds. You know, 275 isn't the full production budget. Um, so in order to secure the entire loan package, they have to do piss tests. So they can't be high the whole time. A drug test, um, and yeah. they have to bring along a stooge from the Bond Company, which they repeatedly call him. Uh, <laughs> and his name is Bill Ubell, played by Bud Gort. Bud Gort, yeah. Of Arrested Development. Um, sure. Yeah, sure. Why not? That's what I love him in. And yeah. they have to swear not to kill the shark. Ah, not to kill the whole thing that they're getting revenge for. And he agrees tentatively. He says, I'll fight it, but I'll let it live. What about my dynamite? And I love <laughs> right. the gamble just line. goes, Philip, the dynamite. <laughs> like, the that's dynamite. fine. Yeah, like yeah. His, yeah, there's no pretense whatsoever, even though it's clearly what's what what's going on is he's not going to listen. Then we get uh, maybe one of the only cartography montages in film. We get a jaunty montage of mm-hmm. them like navigating Preparing. the sea, <laughs> yeah. which is amazing. They're doing car, they, but they're also setting up. They're doing cardio, yeah. dynamite tests. Ned gives a seashell to Jane, so we're developing all all 
triangle arcs the at triangle all times. triangle is forming, yeah. Uh, and Zisu, of course, interrupts. Uh, Ned learns to swim. He dies for a second, and that takes us out of the montage. They revive, and they, but not before they make sure that the camera was exposed correctly, like with the lighting. The so other it's recurring like joke is, is that all is. times when you'd think things are so out of control that they wouldn't be filming. They're always filming. That is a recurring right. bit. Yeah. Which is now like in a post, you know, we're now postmodern when it comes to like the office and our, our culture has, you know, things like influencers that has lost its teeth. Oh I yeah. Remember and we have shows that are in shot the, yeah. in the office style where they don't even explain diegetically why, why it's like just there is no fictional now. documentary, tr- which I just think is interesting because yeah. when you look at this era, like, you know, even, you know, 15 years ago, they're it like, was like, isn't it weird oh, that this they're is filming fresh. this? Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Let's do a joke about how like the cameraman's going to die. Uh, th- I, the new season of uh, what we do in the shadows uh, just came out and I was watching the first episode last night and they literally do that. Not, and I had the same thought. I was like, Hmm, they're still doing that bit because that bit was popular. Like one of the best parts of the jokes of the original movie, but it's been 10 years. You know, now everyone films everything all the time. It's weird that it wouldn't be filmed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We get it. Yeah. The, get the it. cameraman's yeah. there. Everyone's has to be in the room. That's yep. 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 Uh, so then we get a thing that bumped me in terms of, I don't know. My note is just pretty sweaty metaphor, bro, which is to represent that the marriage is falling apart. Eleanor confronts Steve and says, I don't think you should have taken Ned's money. And he goes, oh, sure. come on. Yeah. He's an investor. He's my sidekick. And she points out, oh, the sugar crabs oh, are yes. back. The sugar and, crabs. And uh, they look down at some fanciful CG crabs. And he says, they're early this year. I've never seen them mating before the solstice. And he says, mm-hmm. is that mating? And then it cuts to them brutally ripping each other apart. Get it? That's them. That's their marriage. The nature uh, of the like, relationship. Okay, all right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but that some great work the with the, uh, the uh, what's it called? The seahorse in this. We're starting to see Henry Selleck, who's oh, really cool. all of the animation. Fish, you can yeah. see the nightmare before Christmas of it all. For sure. It's cool. Um, and then uh, to at sea. be seen as a Wes shitter upon her. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, and because it's true. Then we get a wonderful shot of Bill Murray walking upset back and forth down this dock that's swaying in the breeze lit by overhead lamps as his wife flies away because she doesn't want to be part of the production and he's Uh, unsure about the state of his marriage really beautiful shot i thought mm -hmm. very very much so that is he uh there's a mat it's interesting because usually the the aesthetic of like think about bottle rocket and how little control there was there and how the aesthetic really started to come into its own during Rushmore. Wes Anderson is uh, functions greatly with control, just like any director, but he chooses as part of that control rooms that I can shoot a, a pretty wall. You know, mm. it's great to see him go outside and look at the sea and be like, that is pretty as well, uh, which we see in his later films like Moonrise. Um, you know, he's he's getting more confident in with less control, finding a way to find you know, good shots instead of shots that are usually on the rails of Wes Anderson thing. Um, our next sequence, we're at sea while they cut the film. Jane and Zisu do an inter- interview in a hot air balloon. Well, it's not as, as much of an interview as it feels like a date. 
Zisu uh, shows off the tattoo that is identical to the submarine that Michael pointed out last. Uh, the word Jacqueline crossed out and replaced with deep search, showing that he denies that like he even denies that she exists on his body. Like it's not that he crossed off her name as much as he crossed off the name of his submarine and shows that he's close to that kind of pain. Uh, and she confides into him that she had a poster of him above her aquarium when she was growing up which makes him think he, he can get into her pants <laughs> yeah and so she he responds that he feels like he was in he's an imposter uh, and then he makes a pass at her which she like Rebuffs. deflects yeah. yeah and uh she asks and says about why ned did you abandon ned and you're to like, change the subject killer. which yeah. toes shows you exactly what is in her mind and also you know we know shows what's, in his what's mind. going on yeah. and drinks his drink, which <laughs> which he responds to. What What's the line? Did you have it written down? Well, all? it's something. Do you think you should be drinking when you got a bun in the oven or whatever? So he's like yeah. fast to just then he immediately judgment. lights a cigarette, by the way. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also, I think we should mention that he says he floats the idea to Ned that he should change his name to Kingsley. And Ned says no. And then mm -hmm. in the documentary materials they've renamed him kingsley ned zisu so he unilaterally he, changes yeah. <laughs> owen's name and Which they actually despite the triangle that's forming between them that you know there's going to be trouble down the line uh he is also developing the father-son bond with uh ned it's working out like they're buddy buddy um mm -hmm. they wear matching outfits he's on the team now and uh he in the editing bay, we see Steve argue that they should make Ned an arc like, oh, maybe we should bring into the film the idea that we have a new team member, Ned. And, you know, um, so he's sort of legitimizing and as Ned at this point in the film wants and is ha pleased by legitimizing his role in his life and saying, yeah, 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 we're going to do this. We're going to be pals. And we get that scene a few uh, like pretty quick here. Uh, Ned entrances himself further into the group by asking to make changes to the Zisu insignia. Mm -hmm. And uh, Steve says yes. Um, and then there's a reading of a letter, another trademark. Pretty much of Wes standard Anderson. boilerplate, I guess. Boilerplate response to a child Ned who sent fan mail, save one line which says, I remember your mother. So again, <laughs> dictated, his, not read. <laughs> dictated, not read. His past is wrought with the denial of Ned. So we're developing that. Also, there's a short sequence before that just to show off that the dolphins have cameras. It's a plan payoff that pays off later. Well, uh, it also they, has a good, and they say yeah. either they can't hear us or they don't understand. And he says, I'm so sick of these goddamn dolphins. Son of a bitch. Yeah. I'm sick of these dolphins. Yeah. Zisu decides to take a shortcut through unprotected waters next. Uh, even though it's in uh, intern to, protest in order to cut it down time. Well, in order to break into a research station owned by Hennes Ari Hennessy, the Goldblum rival, Goldblum. to strip it of the equipment they will need to track down the jaguar shark they're trying to get revenge on. Mm -hmm. So they don't even have enough money to really make the voyage work, so they have to steal stuff as well. Plus, it's out of spite because he hates him. It really, like... It is a classy version of Archer. I keep thinking of Archer. It's you very know? Archer. Yeah. 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 Uh, long episode of because Archer. Because so. they're they're fools and, and they're overconfident and they're on and, uh, yeah. you know shooting at each other a lot and having right. adventures. Yeah. Uh, there's a quick scene where Zisu confides in Ned that he actually likes uh, Jane as well, um, even though it seems like so far they have hated each other. He's like, nah, I kind of like that. And Ned kind of just kind of accepts this. 
right. and then we cut to immediately the uh, result of that, which is Zisu breaks into Jane's room and reads her notes on him and he's offended and she's offended because he broke into her room. Right. And he says, please don't make fun of me. I just wanted to flirt with you, which is the most Wes Anderson line Zap I can ever Brannigan, think of. Zap baby. <laughs> yeah, exa- yeah, exactly right. Uh, yeah. Pathetic and thirsty. Yeah. And I want to uh, point out, I think some, a thought that coalesced that I think is valid is I have no problem with any individual like I do like it's always sunny in Philadelphia in a vacuum. I like this in a vacuum. I like the office, even though Michael is indefensible and we still are made to forgive. I I like forgiveness, especially when the character is shown to have actually learned and altered their behavior. Yeah. And then the forgiveness feels real and earned and redeemed and whatever. But I'll just say then when other people reflect back to me. Yes. But if you look at the landscape in every movie is about it's so interesting how white cis men can be toxic deep inside but mm-hmm. we could still forgive them you're like if if 80% of movies about that then you have a problem and it's like a societal pattern problem but mm-hmm. i just want to state that in ind- each individual case i do think i totally stand behind that it's hilarious that he points a gun at a pregnant lady you know like yeah. it's context yeah. it's context it's also like i mean i don't know we've also thought about it a lot more we just wrote a movie about forgiving yeah. a cis you know teenager for right. being a bigot for being a bigot. and it's yeah. like we we don't we we do that less i don't know i don't it doesn't need to be a conversation about this but it's just like i don't know after thinking about it for a while you start to realize man we we normalize this shit. We're sure all the time. interested in ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And um, we'll talk about this more. I think when we get to Phantom Thread and there will be blood, and because uh, right, PTA yeah. is not without a, his as area these of guys focus. get as these guys get older, they, right. Settle they into both a group. do seem to uh, double down on this fact. So. Mm-hmm. Um, but back to the movie, Hennessy Goldblum finds out that the lab was broken into and vows to hunt them down for revenge. Right. <laughs> so I, revenge I love thing. that Goldblum does the same exact thing. He just is like a, like they both do sea excursions. They both have like They're the same guy. That, yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. They're the same guy. They just, one has a little bit more money. Uh, recently rewatched Twister and it's like the same thing with Carrie Ellis and you know, Bill Paxton slash Helen Hunt. It's like, we're the ragtag crew and yeah. you're the ones who have all the you're money. You're Cobra Kai. You're yeah. both doing weird shit. You're both going out in the middle of nowhere and recording shit for science, but you're really just there to like basically have a pissing contest. I don't know. It's just very, it'll never not be funny to me. Agreed. Uh, so then, yeah. uh, you know, we cut around a lot in this movie, just boom. And now a new thing's happening. And Mm -hmm. so indeed that happens and we're getting direct to camera footage from the dock of Steve bragging about the antennas in their hats that let them listen to cool synth music while they dive. We -hmm. hear a kick-ass Mark Mothersbaugh theme that I'm Mm -hmm. sure you all associate with the movie. And and Bill Murray does an awkward, hilarious dance that is incredible in its subtle hilarity. And mm. was in the trailer, and I'm sure everyone can remember his little dance. Then they dive, and they find what a crashed plane, a black box. <clears throat> reminded yeah. this part reminded me of Subnautica, the game. If you mm-hmm. played that, um, and they start talking underwater because they have the cool helmets. And Ned says, "Would it be all right for me to address you as Dad in this scene?" To which Bill Murray replies, "No. Why?" 
which is such a good funny. I yeah, like. Why? I feel like that's a bombach because you're my father. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and he says, "Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot. I'm sorry." Uh, uh, and Klaus says, "Where are you coming from, you jack off shit?" shit. Uh, but then he says, yeah. "No, it was a good impulse. Let's use a nickname. You can call me Stevesy." So there's mm-hmm. just this awkward interplay of. He wants to be a father figure. He doesn't want to be a father figure. Ned wants him to be his father. Ned doesn't want him to be his father. Yeah, it's this, uh, it keeps in, it's in flux. He's he's trying to have a relationship, which we'll talk about a little bit more because I definitely want to dive into what uh, Steve Zissou thinks, what he's thinking actually, because there's some reveals to happen Mm -hmm. soon. Like what he actually thinks about, like, why is he doing this, you know? Yeah, but that ends and we get the next scene, which is just a Klaus Klaus rules scene. Uh, Ned slaps him to get even uh, just unprompted. But Klaus is like, I thought it was all wrapped up. Like he he thought that they were like, okay, they were cool. But like Ned was like, no, I owed you one. I owed you a slap. And Klaus, it's so funny because he's actually, he's all bark, no bite. We learn in this scene. He fights for himself just a little bit, but then he cries and runs away. Well, even damn it. Like he's, he's just a little, uh, it's just so cute. I just love Klaus so much. He's pretty great. Um, Then Ned listens to the baby in Jane's tummy while she chews gum and drinks wine. It's a very Wes Anderson combination of elements. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he says, I think you'll be a very good single mother, although it does put you both at a tremendous disadvantage. And then they bone <laughs> or they start. Would to. it surprise you that the uh, the first casting was supposed to be Gwyneth Paltrow? Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. So uh, let's see. OK, then comes and we're essentially at the midpoint of the film. A moment that I do think is a truly genius. This is one of the where I was like, this sings so hard. And it's uh, so he says, I think Steve has a thing for you. He told me you hurt his feelings. And she says that's so effed up because her special thing is she says effed up instead of fucked up. And then the dolphin, the dolphins have cameras on them, right? So we've already set this up. And out the porthole, we can see that a dolphin is filming them boning. Then we see Steve see through a porthole in a door, a TV feed on which is projected the footage of the boning. Yeah. But while he's watching, the dolphin looks away to look at another dolphin who nods as if to say, yeah, they're boning. Yeah. And that <laughs> yeah, to me perverts. is like one of the the funniest. It's so complex <laughs> yeah, that yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. of a way to walk in on people boning and you feel betrayed. You're like, I'm watching these dolphins. A yeah. dolphin on camera nodding at you like, that's right, motherfucker. It's <laughs> such yeah. a funny way to do that. Yeah, it's very funny. So also, good. pervert dolphins. Dolphins pervert dolphins. Pervert. Yeah. Very funny. A dolphin spying on <laughs> your son and i don't know him. how we get that because it's not like they have expressions that are like you know like, <laughs> but that dolphin looks like oh <laughs> shit oh yeah <laughs> motherfucker and that that's something that wes anderson i think was intentional and i think he succeeded uh he made those dolphins out to be perverts so yeah and uh, i also thought it was really interesting that it's all in silence and it's all yeah. through shots of there a round go. porthole or a round dot which before so i'll just say i wrote in my notes before the transition um this really reminds me of the sequence where hal sees them reading lips in 2001 a space odyssey yeah, that's true which is also the midpoint of that film and yeah, this it's the midpoint of this film and right. 
That's nuts because the very next moment in this film is Pele singing the song Space Oddity in Portuguese, uh. which is a reference to 2001 A Space Odyssey. So it just made me wonder if it's intentional, if that was like an homage That's to interesting. the I didn't think about the, uh, the David Bowie uh, angle. But yeah, so he's playing the guitar, guitar mm. and another good shot. Uh, we see in the background that the pirates <laughs> They're are arriving. by pirates. Yeah. So as they're in unprotected waters and the intern was right, they shouldn't go there. The script Pirates girl. take over the ship and they do it uh, with a plum because Ned was supposed to be the lookout, but he was boning, uh, which is something that Steve makes a big deal of. Uh, Bill, the stooge, is also taken hostage. And there's a little bit of argument about who they're going to take. Uh, but it ends up that it's Bill because he knows Tagalog. Uh, and then Zisu goes nuts uh, and is, it's suddenly an action movie in a style that I would say approaches like sabotage, uh, you know, the Spike Jones joint, because uh, it's just like a 70s kind of like Knight Rider-esque zoom, servo zoom lenses, like we're doing all this work just to make it all style and it's completely out out of style of Wes Anderson, but it fits for its own sequence because we've seen it all before. Uh, and ultimately hmm. what it, what happens is he, he kicks the pirates off the ship. Uh, the pirates were basically leaving because they have, they had all the stuff, but, took uh, their vault. Yeah. but he just, it's, it's important to Steve that everything happens on his terms so basically he just killed some people and an intern points out that he's a maniac, rightfully so. And one of the interns uh, gets macheted in the shoulder. One of them gets macheted, which is the intern that actually stays behind right. because the next scene is kind of like literal line in the sand. Uh, who's with me? Who wants to keep doing this journey? Who's out? And uh, oh, get we get a dog. A, and they get a three-legged Fucking dog amateurs. left over. You left your yeah. dog, you Do idiots. You uh, uh, Klaus defends him though, because he's, you know, Klaus will follow him into hell. And there's a wonderful shot of, uh, while the interns are kind of, um, discussing the mutiny, there's a wonderful shot of him returning to the porthole and, and eyeing their descent mm -hmm. or, yeah. So I, I like that bit again. I love Klaus. Uh, and that's kind of the pirates sequence. They're now. They no longer have their money because the safe was stolen. So Ned's inheritance is gone. A lot of their equipment is gone. Uh, they're discouraged. And at their lowest point, Goldblum arrives and he's charging Zisu to save him and his crew. Um, basically, he's like, I'm looking for the people who stole my shit. Uh, and Zisu's like, dog, yeah, it was so probably the same. Bad. Yeah, yeah. He's like, it's probably the pirates. Yeah, I feel like uh, Wes Anderson is telling us something here about Goldblum's character by hitting <laughs> a dog, a three-legged dog. And then we, uh, yeah, the interns officially quit. Uh, Jane calls the father of her child because we had a small mini arc that while well, she was under threat of violence, she had the epiphany that she needs to find a father for her child. Which I, I boo. I don't know. I think that's a dumb message. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> I guess I understand the thought that it's like, uh, you know, in the moment when you're like, oh, I, like my life isn't in order and it hears like the universe telling me, get yourself, like have a life. But it does feel like we don't follow Jane enough to really get the nuance of that understanding. So it does feel unearned. Um, 
And yeah, so she calls the father of her child saying she's not coming back and it's over because she doesn't know what she wants quite yet, but she knows she doesn't want to return. But she, And she's also leaving the exped expedition and it's too dangerous. So we get the kind of added conflict of, oh, I thought the triangle was going to resolve. Maybe she's just going to leave. Mm -hmm. um, and that's temporarily where we're set. Back at home, uh, Zisu returns Good line, by to, the way. Ned yeah. says, uh, I don't know. I almost feel like my heart's kind of getting broken. I guess I'm overreacting. I like that. Yeah. That's, that's Bombaki. That's Bombaki right there. Back at home because like he needs a breather. And by home, I mean Eleanor's Island, uh, formerly known as Zisu Island, I believe. All right. Also, you skip. Sorry. He calls uh, Gambone for help. And he's no help because he's he's getting deported. <laughs> like he can't even, right? He doesn't yeah. have his shit together. And he goes, well, what am I supposed to do here? And he goes, well, I must say, nothing's coming to mind. Philip, any suggestions? No, Philip's shaking his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, always, I have nothing always, for you, bro. Philip the dynamite. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And then there's this interaction. Calls Goldblum a queer. Basically, yeah, the, all the things that we talked about. He's an uncouth uh, man. To, he's yeah, an uncouth man, uh, but he tells her, more importantly, that he's worried that Ned is his son. But he does apologize, and it's the first time we ever we we've gotten Steve to. Now we're starting our act three here. He's apologizing for being trying to make uh, right. Gotta he's trying make to make right. right. So yep. we're starting that transition to act three, where he's. I haven't been be my best this last decade. He feels his career is over, uh, but not before he calls Angelica Houston too old. So he's he's well, still he's there, still rude. baby. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He says you were uh, you were already too old to have a baby, unless that's a cop out. And she goes, "I was thirty four, which is very yeah. similar to that's a trick question. You don't have a middle name. It's Margaret. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway." Yeah. So it basically he's he's starting to cope with some of the mechanisms that have formed his insecurities over the years. But he's got to face the greatest one, which is but that he's, he's still not jealous ready. Of yeah. So he blasts into Jane's room and says a line <laughs> I that turn. I enjoy. Oh, yeah. I'm about to blow my stack. I turn uh, my back and the bullshit begins. I like that too. <laughs> yeah. So Jane is, uh, and he's, and he's basically saying bro code, bro. I called dibs. I called dibs, right. which, which is, is obviously not, not the again, right nonsense. Uh, yeah. So Ned and Jane are just like, they're just sleeping, you know? Uh, and he and Zisu's angry that they're together at all. That's basically all this is a big baby. Well, and he lashes out by saying, calling her a pregnant slut, which of course makes mm -hmm. Ned go, okay, that's it. I'm going to fight gonna you, fight Steve. Now. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is man, bottle rocket side of the road, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, you call me, you call yourself my son, but I just don't see it. It's nothing personal. They trade punches and argue about, mm -hmm. you know, how to properly sucker punch someone. Um, mm -hmm. so it's a very twee, like fight breakup moment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, then he says to, oh, oh, uh, Cubby walks up and he, Steve says, what do you want? She says nothing. And he says, that's so arrogant. <laughs> Screw off. Right. Um, and they all start to argue. I let you call me Steve Z. It sounds even better than dad. To which he responds, that doesn't mean the same thing, which is, of course, very impactful. And um, true. And then finally reveals, a week before my mother killed herself, she told me you knew about me since the day I was born. Is that a fact? That's a fact. And then you're like, okay, then. Um, but 
seeming to save them from their all is lost moment, or at least like kick the can down the road energy wise. Eleanor arrives by water taxi with all the money they need to save the production. She finally Yay! did cave and ask her parents for the money. Um, They're saved by rich people. But it turns out um, the money's not intended for the production. It's intended to recover Bill. So it's, they a, it's a rescue. They didn't forget uh, about the company stooge. And they have a recording of Bill, who is such a stooge that he didn't even tell them where he was because he spent all his time being polite and apologizing. But Eleanor deduces but it. She which, can decode yeah. his sounds yeah. just with magical nonsense. They know where he's going to be. He has to be on these islands. And that's when Steve is like, I know the place because it has to be like this hotel that I've, uh, you know, I've been at. So we cut to them storming the beach, basically. And well, there's a funny bit. You yeah? skipped just a little I scene that I know. think is notable because of the intense Bechdel fail, which is a scene where Eleanor and Jane have sandwiches and talk. And the first line is, is the father out of the picture? And the third line is, I don't know, maybe it's my hormones. That makes sense. And all they talk about is, what's going on with the dudes? What do you think yeah. about the dudes? Yeah, How are the dudes working out together? Um, but yeah, so then we get the storming the beach. <laughs> yeah, uh, there's Scooby a funny with bit harpoons. with swamp leeches. They only Great get it bit. on Zisu. Everyone I'm the only one that got hit. What's the deal? What's the deal? <laughs> Klaus is sad because he's not picked by Zisu to be on his team when they're separating into A and B teams. <clears throat> but Steve reminds him that he's the leader. He's squad leader of the B team. And this seems to abet that little arc that's happening, which is Klaus is sad because he he's also a uh, son. Uh, mm. to uh, Zisu. So it's like this kind of like, oh yeah, by the way, we have this little vignette that's going on the whole time, which is exact duplicate of the pre of the real one, which is Ned. Kind of felt um, like too easy of a resolve for me. Or like they ran out of time enough, in the script. Also not enough difference. Um, right, but agreed. that's all taste. Uh, turns out the location, because they start going to the hotel, checking it's each Seemingly room empty. Yeah, it's seemingly empty. He says, all right, let's check out. And then falls down the stairs mm -hmm. and says, did you get that, Vikram? Good. We'll show them the reality this time. An old, broken, washed up old man feeling sorry for himself, all washed up. <laughs> so like, so he's, that's this the is the true all is lost yeah. point because yeah. Steve is at this point so disappointed in himself, which he, he goes, has been the whole time. Yeah. He's willing to show the record. To other people, his sadness, which he wouldn't before because he's it. a monolithic kind of figure to a lot of people. Another resonant then, line earlier <clears throat> that we skipped is, uh, but he says, uh, you just want, Ned says, you just wanted me to be in your film. And he goes, but it's not a film. It's a documentary. This is all really happening. So it's been set up that that's what he cares about the most, right? He actually thinks that's my legacy. That's what I really am. I'm the avatar of Jacques Cousteau. And this is him saying, you know what? Put it in the movie. Put it in the movie that I suck. So that's right. Yeah. L, uh, and then, oh, sorry, we get uh, next scene pitches to Ned that his nickname shouldn't be Stevesy or dad because that I neither feel right. Once again, not the true thing, but we're getting closer. He says, what if you called me Papa Steve? And he apologizes to him. He says, and he calls him his son, which Ned accepts just then like clockwork because it's writing. As soon as that happens, uh, it turns out they're at the right location. In other words, the second that well, he because they find a mass grave relents, which is his, crazy grim. Yeah. 
Yeah. They're so like, Cody, the pirates the... killed the entire crew. Yeah. They they hang their little hats, yeah, their little yeah. gold hats. bloom hats on, on the crosses. Cody, the pirate dog, who would obviously know exactly where they are, uh, points mm-hmm. out where the pirates are. Gold bloom is playing cards with the pirates. And he asks, oh, have you come to save me? Uh, but just then... Uh, realizing what's going on, the pirates shoot Goldblum. He's not dead, but they shot in the stomach. And Zisu opens fire at the pirates, much like the previous sequence with the pirates. Um, it's basically an action sequence. But this time we don't show the action movie, probably because of budget. We wait outside with the crew, but we do see explosions and whatnot. It's a whole production. Oh, uh, and we briefly he... stop for Steve to almost harpoon a child in the face. Almost. Which yeah. is also pretty grim if you think about it. Yeah, it's it. pretty grim. But yeah. then, yeah, Bill. He's ready to the, do that. Who who they actually were here to save. Bill is mm. like, don't do. He was the one who's nice to me. Yeah. Uh, and so he doesn't. Uh, and so he saves Bill and Alistair and he promotes Klaus to a squad. He says that's to- it. I'm retired. Yeah. And uh, as they run back to their ship, they he you know barks orders to the day A team, which he's now off of. Klaus is a team now. Yeah, because I guess that's relenting a little bit of ego. Yeah, I mean, not that much if you're still barking orders because he still says, "Yeah, just blow up the pirate ship," which they do. So as they uh, run away uh, in their ship, uh, the pirates cannot chase after. I did like the joke here about seeing the dog on the shore. Of oh no, we forgot Cody. We gotta go back. And no one cares and because that it was the pirates' dog anyway. Yeah. Goodbye, Cody. Goodbye, Cody. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, they look at Ned's insignia when they return. And now as a team, having, you know, been, uh, you know, forged in the same fire, they all like it. Uh, and that we get a little bit of peace here. Zisu is adamant about uh, giving up and selling the sub. But Ned says no. And he gives a little pet talk about finding the shark is one last hurrah. Show him what you're made of, which, you know, Steve is like, OK, turns out Steve kept Ned's letter that uh, Ned sent as a boy mm-hmm. and they share a loving moment uh, over green. That would be nice to breathe underwater while they fly on a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. But then suddenly their helicopter, uh, a pin in the rotator snaps and they go down, which and also f- involves a pretty phenomenal shot that I think is just worth mentioning because it's such a confluence of everything that we're doing here because it's super twee, uh, like a very popular indie shot is a shot facing down of feet with cool shoes on, ideally. Uh, <laughs> and true. this is a shot facing down of cool shoes, but in a helicopter that's crashing. And it involves going from not underwater to underwater, which is a huge Anderson, both of them, trope. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to call out that shot. It is cool where you see it from like uh, Owen's point of view as he looks down and the thing hits the water. And mm-hmm. I uh, think it's mm-hmm. okay. Go ahead. I think it's nice as they fall. Steve puts his arm around Ned like a parent does yes. in a car. Yeah. Um, but so then we, we quickly realize yeah. that Ned is badly injured and like blood in a is shot that from I want to talk about mm-hmm. because I think that this is probably Wes Anderson at his. It's out of it's him out of his comfort zone doing a thing that a lot of directors do, which is very good. That he is yet to do, which is to do visual storytelling. What, while we chronicle, you know, while we do the Andersons, something that I've been adamant about is that 
something that like Paul Thomas Anderson does, which is that shots that have intention that actually mean something uh, because of the way in which they're shot. Wes Anderson has an aesthetic and there's kind of like a, a there's like a joke that occurs by the mere fact that it's like presented in the way that it's presented but the shots are always proscenium and done in the same way and you don't really have a lot of room to like therefore have some reveal happen in a shot or have a compound shot that moves over and shows ah but this is actually what occurred so you don't have any of these compound moments suddenly we get one of the first ones I think in his career honestly uh, that I can remember where the blood under the water starts to get a deeper red mm. and as the la- waves like kind of lap upon the camera lens we slowly realize in combination with uh, Owen Wilson's performance that, that he's like clearly kind of dazed and losing blood that he's probably going to die like yeah. he, something is terrifying under the water because it is getting so bloody that literally I wonder see. if they got it practically yeah. or they actually did a CG a streak of blood actually falls down the lens because it's so right. pervasive the blood um turns out yeah he dies cut to uh, funeral which i do think it totally makes sense structurally because this is a classic it's funny there's the three-act structure the with the happy ending and then this is also a slightly lesser used but still very popular structure that's the three-act structure with the happy ending with an extra sad thing at the end to remind us that life is poignant. Um, This is also a popular film structure Mm. for films that want to kind of be taken seriously, but still have fun. And uh, I think it's, so it makes sense in a structural way. I still found it like an odd. I was like, we were so close to why couldn't it just be happy? It's interesting to me. It's just a taste thing, but yeah. Uh, Do you think choosing to kill Ned here, is that avoiding the, like kind of what you're saying, the cliche arc of passing the, like, so something these films often do. And usually when like a son dies, it's like the, there's a cliche kind of thing that we do in movies or in storytelling where you pass the torch to the next generation. Right. Mm -hmm. And so is this maneuver avoiding that cliche or is it simply just affirming that the story is about Zisu and Zisu only? Like, does it, like, what do you think that his death, why is that included? Why does he need to die? Uh, that's what I, I'm saying. I envision a version of this film where he doesn't die and it does seem more cliche and it doesn't bother me at all. I think I would prefer the version where this movie is about 20 minutes shorter and Ned is there when they find the Jaguar shark and it still has the same emotional right. twist, which is they choose not to kill the Jaguar shark. Um, but I don't see why Ned has to die. I have the same problem with six feet under. Um, sometimes right. I feel like main characters are taken out, um, because a, because a story wants to feel important, but my argument would be, okay, if you're no country for old men, that makes sense because your entire theme is um, nihilism or trying to deconstruct the idea that there is come up and sir justice in the karmic sense. Mm-hmm. This was not that. This was a treatise on you know responsibility, father son, toxic masculinity, exactly. redeeming so, itself, and and mainly this makes it suffer an excuse for oceanographic funny fun with a guy who's irresponsible like Archer or Anchorman. I think Ned's death is kind of at odds with that and just thrown in as a way to be like, but life is still very serious. And you're like, yeah, I know, but I doesn't, it doesn't feel as in, in peace with this film to me. Yeah. It's not, 
it it feel well one thing that I did read about it because I wanted to see if anyone had any answers to it. One thing I read that of note is that the movie is dedicated to Jacques Cousteau, whose son died in a seaplane crash. So it could just oh. be like a one to one analog. But I don't think that it that's not why you narratively that you can throw a reference into a movie of someone dying on a seaplane crash. That doesn't mean I mean it could also that it needs to be a, a major set piece of your plot like beats. Um, it can be so I agree with you. Sorry. I was just going to say it could be an attempt to make you feel like it's precious what they found. It's even more precious because they found it just in That's time. That's what I was trying to think about yeah. that. But like, here's the thing is it's less true to the complexity of what it means to be a father uh, to me because sustained responsibility. They, they took, right. they took it away from us. The idea that like, yeah, it's sustained that he would, he would actually get that the the expeditions would continue and the you know be they a could father yeah. they'd be a father and we'd see what a father looks like a true picture of what zisu as a father would look like um but like i don't know and obviously he's in turmoil for the rest of the film about having that ripped from him but i get, again i think it's really a, like what it comes down to is when it's like a wes anderson joint it's about one person and it's that person on the top of the pyramid uh it's not about poor dead ned it, it could have been probably should have been but that's like i don't know if i made or you made the movie so this whole presumption to change the story is not really useful critical it's just like my opinion man. right and of course but anyone can always say well in life stuff happens just randomly and you right fine serendipitously fine, fine but yeah. we're discussing well, you but know, it's the convenient because <laughs> it forces the movie to be about self-examination yeah and not something like i don't know spielberg and the many imitations thereafter where it's like his son is also starting his own journey. We just don't get that. It's right. said the fatherhood arc just suffers. It just leaves us with his life is over. Well, I'll tell you the truth is I really think that it might be that it, the excuse for it was that they reverse engineered it from an image because as much as uh, there's three moments in this film that I think are truly genius. One is the one I already mentioned about the dolphin on film going. Yeah. Um, here comes the second one and it's Eleanor. It's this image. It's Eleanor, uh, smoking a cigarette in a one man sub looking at us out a porthole as she watches Ned's coffin sink past her. Mm -hmm. And we get the very first glimpse we've had of the logo for Steve Zissou's team that he designed. Uh, and it like falls in slow-mo. It is a truly hypnotic image with a vibe that has never, that is unique. It's like, um, Lynchian in its evocativeness in a totally different direction. And I feel very strongly in my bones that Wes Anderson, that's so Wes Anderson-y in a great way. That's what is his mm -hmm. genius. Who else could think of that image? Oh, I think in the movie there should be a woman smoking a cigarette in a submarine as a coffin slowly falls past her draped in a flag that the deceased designed. And you're like, how did you know that that would be a, so emotionally impactful and and cool? But that is an amazing, brilliant, genius, like feat of imagination. But then to make it work, someone's got to die and be in the coffin. And like, I think I yeah, think it was reversed from that shot. I really do. It was again, it's aesthetic first, I guess. Uh, but it's truly phenomenal aesthetic. <laughs> it's it's funny because uh, you took. I was gonna also punctuate that moment, and I had a note, and your note was very. I like yours. It's definitely more. It, it inspects like what's going on, 
my note on that shot was, what is this? Death cab for cutie? Which is not it's, it's anything. It's a big, strong lean in a clear direction. And I like things that do that. <laughs> that's true. I Yeah. No, that's for sure. That's for sure. All right. Back on the bus. Um, he makes up with Hennessy basically very easily and for no reason just they're just like oh you're all right Mm -hmm. you're all right um and we're we're both bad husbands we're both bad husbands that's what they agree yeah and uh we get the impression that steve's relationship with eleanor is on the mend he asks if they can posthumously adopt ned even though he was 30 she says she'll consider it (laughs) they have a little chat with michael gambone a little chat with jane it's like a wrap-up tour it really is yeah um tells jane you're a good writer and write whatever you want true about him i did those things i said those things i can live with that i can live with that yeah and then just then they find the jaguar shark or at least the tracking yeah. Beacon is now on the radar. So the whole team goes into the sub and gets this kind of celebration. They have this dive. They're going to finish the expedition. We see a and, bunch of uh, amazing undersea stuff. Henry it's like Selleck's a, creepy animation shines. We meet the shark. It's a visual crescendo of the effects. Yeah, we, we see more fish than right. we've seen so far. And they so, see the shark and it's beautiful and they don't kill it. Zisu is vindicated. He did see it even though he didn't believe in himself, which is kind of the crux of the movie. He forgives uh, it. Which is important because he thought it was unforgivable mm-hmm. and he wants forgiveness even though he's unforgivable, right? We get it's this. It's a small win, <laughs> yeah. but it's beautiful, which is actually said by And it really is beautiful. I'm not trying to give it short it's, shrift. Yeah, it, it, it's got the Sigaro song on it uh, and it's how that's how we're supposed to feel. And um, Zisu says, I wonder if it remembers me, which I was like, hmm, I don't know why. I, I, don't, I don't know why that's the line. See, but anyway. I actually think... So my third beautiful moment is this moment, which is the expected one, meaning, well, you better nail the emotional the crescendo. Yeah. And I'm saying, and I do think they do. So that's my third moment from the film that I'd nominate as truly genius. And it does feel, it's interesting because I feel like that coffin flag moment is all Wes. And I feel like the this other moment I like, and this one is more Murray Bombach and Wes confluence. Like, I think it, it kind of is owed to a lot of the people involved. Um, but yes, Murray definitely gets it for crying when he's been so chill and so Bill Murray throughout the whole film. I questioned whether he could cry as an actor, you know, and especially cause yeah. lost in translation had just come out, which is also very low key. Mm-hmm. And he was like, no, I can cry motherfucker. And, uh, that's when they deliver these. And I do think it's a beautiful, Right. It's we forgive the damage yeah. that life does to us because life is also beautiful. And that's all wrapped up in the shark. The shark killed it's Esteban, but it's beautiful. Forgive. So you forgive it. Yeah. It's the answer to why forgive. Why forgive? You don't have to forgive. You don't have to forgive but anyone. No one deserves forgiveness. Life is already so hard. It's rarely the right call to like obsess and get revenge. It's usually yeah. better for you to forgive. And then this is a great encapsulation this is of the that. appeal. It really this works. Is the appeal to that. Yeah, I it, actually it's think a very good moment. The lines where it sings are the lines before when she says, "Are we safe in here?" I agree. I doubt it. Do you still want to blow him up? No, we're out of dynamite anyway. Because to me, that's like, "Are we safe in here? Is life safe?" No, I doubt it. No, but, I agree. Okay, does that make you angry? Do you want to blow something up? No, I don't. We're out of dynamite anyway. As if to say. I've lost my juice. It didn't matter, I've lost my also. lust for revenge. Yeah. Right. And I, the, the only moment I was like, I think it was, I wonder if he remembers me is just like, that's the stick that breaks. The, it's just what occurred you to like him in his mind. One more embellishment. That prompts him <laughs> yeah. to, 
that impro- prompts him to cry. So I think it's almost like a throwaway line if I was to be, you know, the writer doctor and be like, what exactly is that line for? Um, and that bothers me a little bit because I'm like, well, thematically you could be tied to something. So, but who, and who's not remembering him in this movie? Yeah. He's got some issues with like his legacy, but it's more of Ned is the one who's like, I am not remembered if anything, but anyway, it, the well, point is that the moment is, and know, I think it's kind properly. of like to save the Ned thing, but Ned's dead, but he still wants to be a father figure. They're trying they have to have him all the touch <laughs> the pregnant belly. And then she says in 12 years, he'll be 11 and a half. Like he's going to be that baby's father figure. And mm-hmm. I don't, I'm like, why? What did no. he do to earn that? But whatever. Ned shouldn't have died. Yeah. Because Ned shouldn't have died. So now uh, that kid's going to be his surrogate son. Anyway. Cut to screening a bit of the film completed six months later. We get that because the kid is like. Classic, but it always works. We mm-hmm. feel the adventure because we return home changed. There's miles there in our go. shoes. There yeah. you go. Uh, he's won an award that we see as he's sitting down, but he's not watching the film. He's uh, calm Klaus instead is, of angry. Klaus's son or nephew? I'm not sure if it's some kid. <laughs> some kid. He hands uh, Ned's ring, which was like a brought up in the films often as like, "Hey, I, when I was a kid, I was really into you, not just because you're my dad, but you're my hero." Uh, and the boy is about 11, which is you know uh, was cited uh, in the movie as age, like yeah. a, a favorite age. It's like a perfect age. And uh, then we get the last line in the in the movie, which is. This is an adventure, which is, I think, a you know, he's reminding himself that you have to accept life as it comes, and I think that yeah. is a good reminder we all need. This is an adventure; it's just a ride, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and just he's off having uh, expeditions his whole life. He didn't have an adventure with his life. He realizes now that life is an adventure, just relationships and within. Uh, you got to experience that, and he refused to. This whole movie he finally gets it. Puts his puts the kid on his shoulders and he walks out while people are exiting his screening. We get slow motion. It's the trademark. You reference every film that he's done has done this. Um, credits run as the team all joins Zisu one by one in a walk along a pier on his boat uh, or uh, along a pier to his boat. Uh, they're off to kill another crew member, I guess. Uh, oh, Wes Anderson stated that the walking sequence in the final credits is an homage to the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I guess Jeff Goldblum is in that. I don't know why that's a reference, but it definitely, I was like, I've seen this before and it's because the ending of that movie is just apropos of nothing. The whole cast is just now walking, even if they're dead. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, and that's the end of the movie. Well played, which brings us to pedagogy, which a lot of which is woven into diegesis, (laughs) which I like that style better, Um, but it means pedagogy can be short. I now think of it as, did you have more stuff left to say that you wanted to say? Yeah, we talked about (laughs) Ned's death. Yeah. Uh, I do want to say that, like, I think it's pretty, like, the sketch brain in me i was like man deep sea documentarians as rock stars that feels like a sketch premise right it they're lifted up by a rich community of important people the main thing i wanted to say is even more than the other thing i cited uh this reminded me of it's so oh archer it's venture brothers bro like the scenes where he's like get him get him a red cap and a 
jumpsuit. Like, you know, my legacy is passed down to you through my jumpsuit. It's repeatedly very Venture Brothers, which is not, I would never think of Wes Anderson as being interested in that edgy of comedy. But it is like I was, as I no, said, it's there came out of the same place because yeah. they were all the same age and they watched those B serials growing up. Yeah. And comparing you know? this to stuff like uh, like Archer and Always Sunny, I think is appropriate and surprising. Like I didn't expect myself to be comparing this to Anchorman, but it totally is comparable. It makes sense. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. very funny. It is that funny at certain moments. I agree. There's a few things I did notice that I was like, that's kind of cool execution. But one thing that I actually got, I guess I, I missed this the first time through Mm -hmm. after this rewatch is that I I was like, I was like, oh shit. Now I kind of understand the form of the story a little bit better about how much, and I'm surprised we didn't talk about this earlier, how much it's just about second chances. Esteban died. They're going back for the shark. Bill is abducted. So the plan changes. And now it's not an expedition. It's a it's a rescue. Zisu wasn't there as a father. He tries again. It doesn't go as he expected. So there's a pivot. Jane is trying to find a father to live her life with, you know, like the younger couple also represents or I guess reflects the better could have could have would have should have of the choices of Eleanor and Steve's past. You know, like there's a lot of this kind of repetition through time or this idea of like, we could have done it better. I have a second chance to make things right. Uh, And that's the heart of where like all the forgiveness arcs and stuff come from. But it's just crazy about when you start to think about how much all the arcs are really just about second chances. Um, And that's something I didn't notice as much before. Oh, the locations are all Eleanor related. Have you noticed that? Like not to if you without the boat, which is very much like Steve's domain, Mm -hmm. uh, like her island, even when they go to land to secure the um, to secure the yeah, the the final moments in the hotel Mm -hmm. or like the, uh, you know, climax that like there's a reference. uh, Zisu says at one point, like, "Ah, I stayed in this hotel, you know, with her. And that's why I remember this. So. It's just interesting to me that the second chances arc, it didn't, it didn't occur to me as much the first time through. Eleanor is the living embodiment of, you know, that no matter how much you fuck up, if you apologize, you'll get a second chance eventually. Right. Which is kind (laughs) of how Wes Anderson devises his films is it's, there's this, and that's Bombach too. There's this, um, emphasis on like, I'm kind of pathetic. Please forgive me. Yeah. Um, that's the nature of all that stuff. And it's interesting because I think PT Anderson is a little different. Um, he doesn't kind of propose that. I mean, I guess like punch drunk love is that, but I don't know it if compared, it's done in the uh, same yeah, way. I, I think it's really cool that we watch them back to back because I got right. a lot out of comparing it to, as I say, venture, but also punch drunk. There's a sequence in this where there's uh let's see where there's like sloppy jazz drums as an action sequence plays out over handy cam footage. Yeah. Like that's, we were just talking about that in punch drunk and uh, yeah, the magical realism, I think cause it's PTA's most magical. Re- well, Magnolia is, but in a grimmer sort of way, uh, mm-hmm. punch drunk is the most Wes Anderson. I think PTA. And that gets. makes sense because that is unique to P.T. Anderson for being a, this a is my story. dysfunctional love story, which is right. 
you know, that's what, whether it's familial love, (laughs) romantic love, that's what, that's, yeah, that's what uh, Wes Anderson does. Um, Another thing that I noticed was that I liked the, uh, I mapped out the uh, constant electricity problems that are done Mm -hmm. by like all the times it happens in the movie and every single time. Well, first off, I think it's a really good idea because it really installs early on, like its first few beats. It's like, ah, this is a ragtag group of sailors. It's also about overreaching all the upgrades and attempts to build a home in the ship, uh, like make a home and an office out of this vessel. It's just too taxing for the power. So it says a lot already, like from get from jump, but it's also about the loss of sight. You know, because it's like the blind, the temporary blindness that occurs, which has obviously got some parallels to what they're doing thematically with Steve. But uh, it's almost always during a scene where someone is not seeing. They say a line and they're not seeing about the truth of their hypocrisy, like a a truth Mm -hmm. about themselves in what they're saying. And so mostly it's after Zisu's lines. Uh, but the final beat of the power struggle is when Zisu wraps up all the damages in his relationships and he's vowed to be better. And they're like, all right, we're going to go. You know, I love that. We're going to go take like, care of business. And you literally, they're like, oh, good job. You get a trophy. It's just yeah. funny. But yeah. It, and it, Yeah. And it goes off one last time. But instead of one of the crew members taking care of and like solving the problem off screen, he slams a wall and it turns it on again as if the ship itself is reacting to him. So it's a kind of nice little Rondo format. You know, you get this little cool. there and back again. But also it's like I'm there and I'm ch- like I'm back again and I've changed. And now it's like obeying. It's obeying me a little bit better. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's that with that. I did. You know what? That's all I need to say about pedagogy. If you want to move on, because I know we're going long. Well, then I don't need to point out that. Well, I just (laughs) wondered when, when he's talking to Eleanor through the gate on Port-au-Pois, the sound is really uneven just on Bill Murray's side. There's a bunch of mic Uh noise and not on her side and it's jaggedly cutting back and forth. And you also mentioned earlier the way it was, quote, like uniquely shot, the shootout with the pirates. I think it's some of the worst filmmaking I've ever seen from Wes Anderson. I thought the pirate thing looks like they just got loose coverage as best they could. I don't like the sparkly gunshot effects. I don't like how everyone misses a thousand times. Like that's I don't like the shootout to me. I feel like Anderson can't shoot action. It's like fucking bullet, dude. It looks exactly like the shit that we that they're watching in the 70s. So you're just saying it looks the way he wanted. Intentionally. Yeah, it's taste. It's mimicking a form. Um, but yeah, it definitely stands out and almost feels like, like when you live in a world of like beautiful sets and then suddenly you're taken out of it, it's like walking outside of a dark room and seeing the sun. It's like, you can't, it it looks wrong. It looks off. And I think that that is something that I think Wes Anderson should have paid more attention to is the contrast of those two things add their own like artifact slash punctuation for the audience that you have no control of and as a director you need to understand you are to control all moments and uh he's not doing that i think he he lost it a bit well and i do do think think that the the sequence itself mm -hmm. is very good like i think he's Hmm. doing as good as spike jones does in sabotage like it's literally the same stuff oh i Man, I just don't feel it on a gut level, but I totally get 
the argument you're making. Uh, Put sabotage under that sequence and tell me if you feel different. I also think that that it's almost like, but I want to say that shooting a filming a shootout or action Mm -hmm. generally is its own skill set. And I do think like it's almost arrogant to think, oh yeah, Wes Anderson will shoot this just as good as the John Wick people, you know, never having done a gunfight before, you know, I don't know. I don't no, think you're you can right. do everything. It's not good. By you know why? Because he's mimicking people who didn't shoot like as good as John Wick does. Like we have developed Chad a Stahelsky more or whatever. Yeah, yeah, we we've developed more like complex and nuanced lexicon with our shots in action movies, right? But back in the day when you're watching like what was on TV, action mm-hmm. TV in the 60s and 70s, it looked like crap. All like you can tell they're fucking cap guns. You know, it's like it's nonsense, but it was at the time what our suspension of disbelief would allow. And he's mimicking that format. So he's actually embracing the shittiness. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I All guess. right. But yeah, well, I mean, you're, you're right. I, he could have shot it better, but I think he intentionally avoided it. It's yeah. So and I'll just say, like, I thought this film had three truly transcendent moments, which is more than most films have. The only parts that I thought were really bad were I just think Wes Anderson can't shoot action. And it sounds like I'm wrong or it just boils down to taste. So overall, really good movie. Uh, Problematic, but good. Simple, but complex. I don't know. I like it. I'll compare it to Cyberpunk 2077 and I'll be done with comparisons. The story doesn't always do it for me at every turn of the screw, but Mm -hmm. dang, I love being in the world. I just love being in the world. And it is a very unique world, different than other film worlds I've been in. I think it's his most developed world, which makes like that really sings. And that's why I want to live in it. And I think that his camera is developing in a really interesting way, way where he's actually starting to do stuff where it's like, oh, a camera dolly. I'm not just moving in and back and left and right. I'm tilting, creating new compositions out of other stuff that informs new stuff that says, oh, you're here. There's reveals and such like that. Spielbergian stuff, like um, stuff that I would say most filmmakers aspire to do. Um, he's starting to do it instead and not, he's kind of going outside of his comfort zone, uh, which is, I think also why we kind of feel that there's some roughness around the edges. Like when he goes outside and he has to shoot like the Island stuff, the Island stuff was like, well, some of the worst stuff that he's filmed in terms of aesthetically pleasing. Oh yeah. But it's, it's also because hard the to amount, film outside. That's it's the hard to film outside. Yeah. yeah. So lighting <laughs> doesn't look as picturesque, but he did have some cool shots of the French Riviera, mm-hmm. you know, like on sunset where it is like, ah, that does feel, doesn't quite feel like Ander- Wes Anderson. It feels like more like Soderbergh or Clint Eastwood, but it is beautiful. Yeah. Um, and there's an imperfection by design about this movie that kind of allows like the ragtagness. You don't get that out of Royal Tenenbaums or, or Rushmore where there's, they're all rich people who live in rich houses doing rich things with rich butlers. You know, it's like everything is clean. Uh, he dirtied it up a bit and he kind of likes the grime. Uh, and uh, I think it's better for it. And I think as he's developed more, um, I don't think he's developed as a writer. I think he's still chasing the same exact themes every time. And that's my personal thing. Uh, my hang up. I get it. Come at me. You know, I know there's a lot of Wes heads out there who are like, Abe doesn't like this guy. And that's, uh, that's fine. 
Uh, I think he's developing as an artist. That's pretty cool. Speaking of pretty cool, I don't know. You want to do the last bit? Yeah, let's do the last Woo! bit. Woo! This is how he do that, which is just behind the scenes facts and trivia. Um, I love that Bud Court lost 50 pounds for this role. That's why. And he insisted on it. And Wes Anderson was like, you don't have to do that. And he was like, no, I'm doing it. I feel like that was a part of something else where he's just like needing an excuse. You yeah, because I mean? the pirates, you got to get mm -hmm. skinny when the pirates have you. Mm -hmm. um, and I love that the Jaguar shark is the, it was at the time, I think other than maybe Audrey too in uh, Little Shop was one of the largest puppets ever constructed. Eight feet long with five hand cranked controls uh, operated by five operators. Mm -hmm. Pretty dope. Yeah, that's pretty dope. Um, Robert Yeoman, who shoots all of Wes Anderson's live action stuff. Uh, I read an article about him talking about blocking. So the idea here is that Wes Anderson is much like the Coen brothers in that if you listen to our other thing. Coen Brothers Brothers, uh, which will return at some point in what? that it, uh, Anderson doesn't rehearse and change blocking like on the day or on set, like staging is set before they shoot or before mm -hmm. they even rehearse. So on top of that, most of the time he shoots in one direction. Right. When you think of Wes Anderson's shot, you don't see a reverse. It reminded me of how often. he shot after hours, honestly, which is pretty yes. cool. <laughs> uh, so you just need like a wall. Right. It, and you can just be very deliberate on that wall. You can light that wall and such like that. So here's the DP kind of like kind of reflecting on that point. Like he he's kind of like he, he's in the interview. He's like saying, uh, basically, if you think of the flat space that Wes Anderson chooses for his shots, uh, and if you think of that as a limitation, like a limitation a director arbitrarily puts on a shot, like using only one lens in your movie or shooting in black and white, it really frees you to do whatever else you want. So you don't have to light a whole house. And in this case, not even a whole room, just a single setup, basically. And he was talking about how Anderson... That's typically how he shoots. There's not a, like, we know what's on the walls. We know if we're lighting it special in any certain way. We know where the bodies are going to be, how many people are going to be sitting where. It's not like they figure it out when they get there. It's all pre-built. And that kind of preparation is more so than even most, most directors that you think would have that. You know, they usually people build, I need it at least this big, and then we'll figure it out. And are they going to be uh, standing up, walking? I don't know. I need the actors to, we need to rehearse and find out if that's true, if that feels right. Uh, not the case in Wes Anderson. So, Robert, that's why I think you get the elements of control. And that's just, you know, like kind of the DP kind of talking about that. Um, more about Anderson's process. He doesn't shoot with a lot of people on set. He likes to keep it small. Uh, and there's a quote from this, uh, from Yeoman says, there may be five or six people there and everyone else is somewhere else. He doesn't want any distractions for the actors, particularly in a scene that's emotional like that. He was referring to specifically the scene that you were talking about with uh, Zisu, who like with Bill mm. Murray kind of tearing up at the end in the in this in the submarine. Still very subdued. Like, I mean, yeah. it, we have a funeral for Ned and Cape uh, Blanchett barely reacts, you know, like obviously they were directed to in this world emotions are a subdued thing but yeah right. then when you judiciously the do sh have some it has quite an effect yeah 
So from top down, Anderson is like, I want it uh, when it needs to be intimate, which is almost always, I need the crew to be intimate. So, and it's interesting to me because it's very much like Zisu's filmmaking style himself. Like he wants the stolen moments, even though he's making a grand gesture, like, uh, like all the, all the stilted dialogue of like, yes, let's go over there. Yes, sir. I'll go over there. You know, like that's the usual text of like, what's Zisu is filming in his faux documentaries, but it's interesting because the subtext, it feel like what the director wants, as in Steve Zissou wants, is like, what if you called me Steve Z? It's that kind of stuff. It's like the stolen shit, the, the interpersonal play, the nuance of how they did it as opposed to what they did, which is like the heart of Mumblecore uh, mm-hmm. and a lot of the writing that was coming out of this period. Um, and it also informs the intimacy of the shoots. I would be i'm pretty confident that i mean they all kind of came from the same place they all knew each other um a lot of these mumblecore uh authors are also coming out of the same schools uh that wes anderson is coming out of and they knew each other so it's like it makes a ton of sense to me that the idea of like let's just do the intimacy of a shoot with just like five crew members and stuff like that that then became the format for what came to be Mumblecore movies. And I think we're getting, I think somewhere in between and the years match up somewhere, somewhere in between uh, Tenenbaums and Zisu is when that started to hit the market. So early two thousands. Yeah. Oh, four for this, yeah. but that's kind of all I got for how do you do that? Well, all my stuff was about the puppetry and stuff just cause that's what gave me the most joy. Um, I'm sad that they, they left out a fish called the Hydronicus Inverticus, which was a puppet that could turn itself inside out. And it was deemed too magical realism. Like they just decided it was too ridiculous. Um, Mm. and they wanted to keep it slightly more grounded, but I would have liked the (laughs) inside out fish puppet. Yeah. Uh, And the cross section of the Belafonte, the, the actual dollhouse we talked about, I just want to point out, um, like we said, the, uh, you know, the Jaguar shark was eight feet long. That Belafonte model to do that dollhouse sequence was 140 feet long and 40 feet high, four stories high. Yeah. That's awesome. Cause yeah, that's yeah. awesome. Makes sense too. Cause they have to do like, there's like rigging Crank on the, the camera the up and down and left yeah. and right and all this shit. It's yeah. huge. So that camera is sitting on a four story. Well, not four story, but probably like a three story tall crane at its highest mm. extension, which I don't think they go all the way up, but like we're talking that's got to be like a Luma. That's bigger than a Luma crane. That's like super techno crane. That's crazy, man. There's yeah. only like five of those in, in the world. I don't even know if that's, that's true, awesome. but there's not a lot of them. And I own three. Uh, <laughs> and uh, last but not least, just some IMDb trivia. I always appreciate attention to detail at this level. Probably f- was a uh, costume designer's choice looking for a way to use their creativity in their like domain, but could have been Wes, who knows, uh, or could have been uh, Owen. But Ned, er, throughout most of the film, wears a Rolex GMT Master, which is a kind of wristwatch popular with airline pilots because it automatically calculates time zones. And then in the last sequence, the helicopter sequence where he dies, he has swapped it out for a Rolex Submariner for obvious reasons. <laughs> <laughs> He's become a man of the sea. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if there's anything about 
I don't know, because my son was a pilot and then he died in the sea and then I buried him in the earth. I don't know. <laughs> or like no, Ned like is like elemental. Ned's like Final a bird fantasy a, game. Well, there's like the bird fish thing. I just, <laughs> why true. is he a pilot? And then. Why is he of the sea? I think it's because that's another. Oh, he's like, the opposite of Zisu at the beginning. That's why. He's the he's opposite, a pi- but he's also. He's of the sky. You're of the sea. He's uh, yeah. He's like because I didn't have my father, I never found the sea. I existed in a landlocked because he comes from. It's Kentucky. up in the air for me. Yeah. So to him, he's got the spirit of an explorer, but all that he could explore was Ooh. the sky. That Kentucky the, the accent sea. sure came and went, didn't it? Yeah, it did. <laughs> it was a pretty loosey goosey. Which is, which is interesting because they're from Texas. Accent. They're yeah. from Texas, so I feel like accents. They would. I mean, they know. They know a good accent. Yeah, but yeah know, it really is kind of subtle sometimes, well, isn't it? Wilson was quoted as saying that he based the accent on some actor's ac- Kentucky accent, which is interesting. Yeah. Rather than basing it on a Kentucky accent, he based it on another actor who does a Kentucky accent. Right. Yeah. Whatever. Whatever. I mean, things are cartoons. Things are cartoons. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked yeah. this movie. I like doing I, this podcast. I like this movie. I... We're really starting to see a lot of uh, the cool, the coolest aspects, and like what happens when you unleash the Anderson. Yeah, uh, and so he's getting more confident than ever. You know, this is biggest budget movie he's come to do. Uh, I want to see what his next movie is, just because. Uh, do you know what it is? This is. Actually, I don't know. I don't either. Good. Let's, <laughs> let's, yeah. yeah. Well, what's but our it's next? Just because he's, what's he's, on the docket first, for like, us? What's PTA's It's his first next? bomb. That's the whole idea. Oh. Uh, oh, and you're interested to see, always interested to see how an auteur reacts. How it develops. When they hit how you react. Yeah, yeah. When you start, when you, you're at your fullest confidence and then you get slapped in the face and you're like, ah, oh, fuck. Uh, I always, I think that that's an important, uh, that's important. Dude, right? is there will be blood next? I think you might be right. Because uh, last was Punch 2007's Drunk. 2007's There Will Be Blood. Woo! So we've gone to 2002, Woo! 2004, and now we're 2007, baby. And this is, we're going to start entering the phase, though, where we might, we have to talk out, like, how exactly we're going to do Wes Anderson's versus P.T. Anderson. Because after There Will Be Blood... Including there will be blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, P.T. Anderson starts to slow down. They don't alternate anymore. I yeah, mean, right. There will be blood, and then there's five years. There's five years between Punch Drunk Love and There Will Be Blood, and five years between There Will Be Blood and The Master. Mm-hmm. Um, and then five years then for starts, the Phantom, and four years for Liquid no, no, no. Pizza. Then, then he. I mean, Phantom like Threat. three and four for yeah. Master Inherent Vice. Phantom oh, Inherent Vice is only two. Yeah. Yeah, but there are more uh, Wes Anderson films than there are. Paul Thomas Anderson, and there will be a reckoning in terms of the order of operations of this podcast. We'll worry about that. All you have to do is stick around for the ride. Up next is There Will Be Blood and people, Kingheads, stay tuned and thank you for your patience because we're close to rounding this out and then we'll return with season two of Kings of King. So yeah, if you're just joining us or don't know about our other deep dives, we have a series on the adaptations of the works of Stephen King. We have one on the Coen brothers. Uh, I did one back in the day with Alex Schmidt on the books of Kurt Vonnegut. We, we do lots of deep dives into lots of different things. Um, and you can find about all of them over at 
do I need to do this? Or can people only? No. I love it when you do it. I love it. This comes it. out on the free feed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Over at patreon.com slash small beans. Well, sometimes I say that spiel and then I realize it's like a like a behind the paywall. So it doesn't matter. Like they're already there. But you mm. people, some of you <laughs> have not chipped in. Uh, and we'd love it if you can afford it, if you could throw a buck a month our way. And for that, you would get all kinds of bonus content and episodes of different podcasts that we do. So go check that out if you're at all interested. Otherwise, just stay tuned for more of this. This has been a Small Beans Endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.